I'd like to welcome climate scientist and mountaineer John All. He is a research professor at Western Washington University. He's founding director of the Mountain Environmental Research Institute and founding director of the American Climber Science Program. And he's author of the new book, Icefall, Adventures at the Wild Edges of Our Dangerous Changing Planet. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thank you. So as our listeners can hear from your introduction, you are both a scientist and an adventurer, and your book describes these incredible experiences climbing Mount Everest, trekking across Costa Rica, collecting data in Southern Africa, Northern Mexico, the Peruvian Andes. And this isn't just adventure for its own sake. You're collecting data. Tell us what kind of data you're collecting and how these trips contribute to scientific understanding in ways that laboratory science and satellite data can't really do? Well, the thing with the Earth is it's a super complex system. And so we know something like climate change. We know the physics of it. We know how um, when you put gases in the air, they're going to trap more energy. But the Earth is so complex, we don't know what that means for any given location. And we don't know what adding uh, other chemicals to the atmosphere will do for any given location. And so getting out into the earth and seeing what's happening is crucial as we uh, look at changes around the planet. What I've done is dedicated my career to looking at to the edges, to the places where the planet's already vulnerable to change. It's too dry, too cold, it's too high. And looking to see what sort of changes are occurring there. So looking at uh, vegetation impacts, looking at the impacts on glaciers or water quality. And typically, I believe in interdisciplinary approaches. So I try and work with other scientists with other specializations so that it's not just me going out collecting a little bit of data. It's a group of people going out collecting data that can be integrated together and give us a more holistic picture of what's happening in these places. I think it's also really important, something that you write about in the book, that there are places where the kind of data you're taking hasn't been taken. And so what you're doing is providing a baseline so that some years later, people can come and look at trends and look at how things have changed. Exactly. That's one of the big regrets. I wish in some ways I'd been born 20 years earlier, because uh, if we had had uh, the longer the picture we have of change, the more we'll understand uh, just how dramatic it is. And, you know, we don't have as much as we want from the past. And the what I've always believed is the sooner we can start collecting it, the better. And so I've gone to these places that are very difficult and dangerous to reach because we need data from those areas, most of all, because they're the ones undergoing change first. When you think about the peaks of the Himalayas or the Andes, I mean, very, very high mountains, very hard to get to. One can't help but think of them as clean, pristine areas, but they're actually covered with all kinds of residue from our industrial world. What does that look like? What are you finding? You're right. I mean, you think about snow coming down and we talk about purest driven snow and uh, it's white. It's supposed to be as clean as you can get. But when we take snow samples, we find things like arsenic and molybdenum and all these other compounds in addition to gaseous things as well. Um, but that's always what surprises me the most. I'll be 23,000 feet up on a mountain and collect a sample and 
you know, there's copper in the snow and there's lead in the snow. And it's because of, you know, that particular mountain, maybe next to a strip mine. And so the dust blowing off of that strip mine is depositing some of those metals in the snow. And then we also have what we call black carbon, but you would probably just call soot um, from burning. And so that can come from diesel motors. It can come from forest fires or agricultural burning. Then all sorts of organisms that are up on the snow as well. So there's algae, snow algae, and um, other things. And they all mix together to darken the snow, make it melt more quickly. And by looking at what's on deposited on these glaciers, we can both see how quickly the glaciers are going to melt, but also, you know, where is this stuff coming from? And uh, what is it? It's impacts not just on the glaciers, but on humans who breathe it. And this is, I mean, well, first of all, I'm just going to say snow algae. That's like, that goes into my category of oxymoron of the day. <laughs> <It does. laughs> but... Well, and a lot of people see, excuse me, but a lot of people see snow algae. So if you go to Colorado, the ski area or something, and you see red snow, um, that's what it is. That red, it's not a type of dust or whatever coming off of the soil. It's uh, watermelon snow. It's going to be snow algae. So it's really easy for people to spot. So all of these substances that you're collecting on snow from the high mountains, what happens to it? I mean, you write about... Um, mountains being a kind of water tower, and they are very much part of our water supply, very many, many people on Earth. Do those pollutants eventually come into the drinking water? I mean, what happens to them? Yeah, that's one of the main things we're concerned with. We work with local communities in the upper watersheds in Nepal and Peru, because that's a real concern for them. If you have these chemicals going off, and moving into the streams, then that's a water quality issue. So yeah, one of the first things we do is not just sample the glacier. We, we also sample the water as it leaves the glacier toe and then as it moves down through the valleys, down to the first villages. And what we're finding is there's a huge impact from glacial retreat. And the reason is because glaciers, you know, they've been around for 10,000 or more years. And so they've been covering the uh, rock and soil. And as they retreat, they're suddenly exposing rock that hasn't been exposed to the atmosphere in 10,000 or more years. And so that rain is coming in and scouring the rock of things like metals and sulfates and other things. And the most obvious impact has been on the pH of the water. Uh, we work in a uh, national park in Peru, and we'll find pHs in the twos. Very, very acidic. Oh, yes, I mean, uh, battery acid. And uh, what we'll find is in those valleys, all the cattle are dead, and that water is moving towards the cities and towns, and that's their drinking source. So uh, they have to find ways to address that. Looking at the mountains, you've seen some really big changes. For example, there's always been avalanches, but now there's different kinds of avalanches as glaciers begin to melt. It's not just snow falling down the mountain, which is dangerous, but the mountain itself falling apart. What's going on? The easiest way I think about it is um, if you're baking a cake. And if you have a nice thick cake in the pan, it's smooth and pretty and uh, looks really good. But if you make the cake thinner and thinner and thinner and begin to bake it, as it gets really thin, it begins to crack. 
And that's what's happening with the glaciers. They used to be very thick. So any sort of, as they moved, the changes would occur that deep down within them. And as they've uh, melted and the uh, dust on top of them has made them melt even more quickly, then they've begun to crack even more. And last year in Peru, I go every year to Peru and we collect data. And uh, most years, there's one mountain in particular that is a fairly easy climb. It's kind of like walking up a ski slope. Um, there's two crevasses on the entire path to the summit. And last year was in El Nino, and the rain rained a lot higher up the mountain than normal. It melted away at least 100 feet of thickness of the glacier. And when we went back to try and climb it and sample it this past year after the El Nino, we crossed at least 300 crevasses. The entire thing had melted and cracked and broken. And so that creates a whole new set of risks. And that's on a flat glacier. As the glacier gets steeper and thinner, there's nothing to hold it up. And so chunks of ice will break off and fall uh, like have happened on Everest and killed my friends and the other Sherpas. So multiple risks are emerging as the glaciers disappear. A crevasse being a kind of, well, for climbers, treacherous cavity in the surface of the snow or of the ice. Yeah, it's where the glacier cracks. Glaciers are moving bodies of ice. So like the Kumbu Icefall, for example, on Mount Everest, it moves four feet a day. Most people don't tend to think about glaciers moving that quickly. And as they move, it's relatively solid. And as it rolls over rocks and stuff, it cracks and breaks. And that creates crevasses, which are the cracks. And if you're a climber and don't see them, as I didn't, then uh, you can fall into one and hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. You've had some very serious adventures in that way. For sure. it, it's funny that the... I just was thinking the term glacial pace is no longer really accurate. Glaciers are moving so fast. When you say a, a glacier loses 100 feet of thickness, that's almost inconceivable. It, it really is. It's um, we Because we had been going for years and years, and we're used to... I mean, glaciers lose, in Peru, at the area we work, three, four, five feet a year, maybe more in thickness. And so that's sort of the pace we've gotten used to, but... Um, really around the world, glacier melt and speed is accelerating as when they're thick, they can't move as quickly as they get thinner, they can move more quickly. And also as they melt, they put water underneath the glacier itself and that lubricates it with the rock. And so it's able to slide more easily and move more quickly. So yeah, around the world from Greenland to Antarctica, glaciers are moving more quickly now. Climate change is less visible in some places than others. You've gone to many continents as a scientist. You've seen climate change firsthand. Where is it most dramatic and what are you seeing there? I mean, you've given examples of the glaciers. What else? <laughs> well, I mean, we don't have to look too far. We can look at California. Two years ago, there was no, effectively no ice in California. And uh, the lakes dried up and disappeared. We can look at the drought in Texas a few years ago or the flooding in uh, Louisiana. Uh, we can look at impacts on availability of fresh water in Florida as sea level rises and impacts makes the aquifers more salty. So in terms of where is it most dramatic, I mean, it's happening everywhere. 
and it's all around us. And it's very easy for people to overlook it and think, oh, that's just natural cycles, right? And the earth does change, but not at the rate and intensity with which it's changed now. And you know, any sort of natural cycle is being overwhelmed by the human's impact. So yeah, I mean, Africa, the, the fires, there's more fires. The uh, wildlife is dying from drought and then from flood in the rainforest of Panama and Costa Rica. You see droughts that have never happened before, which lead to fires and burn the tropical rainforest. Again, around the world, the impacts are overwhelming. We talk about the danger to human beings of climate change. We talk about the danger to all the other species on this planet and the ecosystems themselves. And these are, of course, interrelated. We are one of those species. But I wondered, how do you think about these dangers as a scientist, as a person who might have something to say about public policy? Should we look at it from a specifically human perspective, what's best for people, or from the perspective of the entire ecosystem with all of these species, or are those things not even at odds with each other? Um, they're not really at odds with each other. For the most part, the more you disrupt the way the Earth functions, the worse it is for humans. Uh, we rely on pollinators. We rely on things called ecosystem services, which are clean water, um, and again, pollinators, and clean air. We rely on a functioning ecosystem. Otherwise, we could go live on the moon without any problem. We clearly can't. So the way to think about this, though, and address it is what are called no regrets policies or adaptation, as I talk about in my book. The key is how can we as humans do things that will benefit us. So things like recycling and using more energy efficient vehicles. I mean, that's not just to cut down on climate change impacts. I mean, it makes sense from the bottom lot for the bottom line. I mean, it's more uh, you save money doing it. And so the more we can identify pathways towards no regrets policies that'll benefit society while also reducing climate change, the better off we are uh, no matter what happens. Is it too late to slow or stop or even reverse climate change? What what are our options? It's not, of course, not too late. It's never too late. Uh, what's the best way to put it? If you're, um, if someone's injecting poison into your bloodstream, the sooner you stop injecting it, the better off you're going to be. And that's really what we're doing. We're injecting a pollutant into the atmosphere that's fundamentally changing the planet we live on. And the more that we continue to do that, the bigger the change will be. Um, we can look back in geologic history. The Earth has had CO2 levels at the same level that they're at right now, and there was no ice on Earth. Florida was underwater. We know what the impacts have to be. And the question is, do we want to lose all of Florida or just part of Florida? So unfortunately, the way to address that is if you ask scientists, well, what do you do about climate change? You stop all fossil fuel use, which isn't realistic. We need fossil fuel currently for food production, for ambulances, for police cars. And so there's a whole myriad of responses that are needed. And a lot of countries are going through those. England last week 
went for an entire day without using any coal, which is the first time in 130 years or something they've done that. And China is leading the world now with solar technology. They're uh, stepping ahead of us because we're retreating. And the rest of the world recognizes that that's critical part of our future, no matter what, because fossil fuel reserves aren't endless. We're going to have to have different sources of energy at some point in human history. And the sooner you begin to adapt, the better you are able to lead that wave and the better off you'll be in the future. A large part of your book, Icefall, is about not just the science, but the adventure itself. And, you know, you sort of get the sense reading the book that if you hadn't become a scientist, you'd still be out doing these things because it, it seems like sort of a calling for you. And you've gotten yourself into some very serious scrapes. The most scary one, or perhaps one of the most scary ones, was you fell into a crevasse 70 feet, broke I don't know how many bones, and climbed out. Can you describe that a little bit for us? Well, it was a terrible time. We had been on Mount Everest. One of our teammates had been killed We'd been in the middle of an avalanche on Mount Everest that closed the mountain in 2014. 16 people died, including people on my team. And um, so it was terrible, but we weren't there for glory. We were there for science. And so we wanted to continue working. But the problem was everyone was so traumatized and demoralized by what had happened. And so we, there was just a few of us left and we wanted to collect what data we could Unfortunately, one of the three people that I had left that I was climbing with got ill. And so with the monsoon coming and when the monsoon arrives, it just begins snowing. It doesn't stop. And so you can't collect any more data. You have to get off the mountain. So when she got ill, there's only three of us, sort of what's our choices. So I agreed to stay up alone while she and the other person went down so she could recover a little bit. And it was a bright, beautiful day. I'm walking along within what I thought was a safe area that we had checked out. Um, I wanted to collect some samples because it takes a long time to process them and then also get some snow for some coffee. I was thinking, oh, it's a beautiful day. I can sit and enjoy the coffee and uh, do my science. And I went from that bright sunlight to pitch black as my world collapsed. And I just I felt vertigo and my face smashing into the crevasse and bouncing back and forth until I uh, reached a ledge, a piece of ice wedged in the middle of the crevasse, and it was a still a long way down. And just if not for that one little piece of ice, I uh, wouldn't have survived. And then you, with only one side of your body really functioning, managed to use your ice axe and whatever tools you had to climb 70 feet back up and climb out. Well, and that actually makes it sound easier than it was because, I mean, first of all, I didn't really have anything. I was just out for 15 minutes. So I had no headlamp. If it had been darker later in the day, I wouldn't have been able to climb. I would have died. I had no cell phone or sat phone or anything. Um, I just had really lightweight gloves and everything on. So I began getting frostbite almost immediately uh, down in that deep crevasse. But, you know, I've spent my life training, medical training, wilderness medical training, search and rescue training, 
climbing. And so I was prepared. I had you know, my daily steps. When you think about where they lead you, mine had led me towards being able to overcome a situation like this. And so I put everything I had into it because there's no real option. You either climb out or die. And I knew that if I didn't make it out because of where I was at, because of the weakness of my team, you know, they would never have been able probably to have recovered my body. And I just, uh, I couldn't do that to my mom. I knew that would tear her up. So I just couldn't stop no matter how bad the pain got and um, how easy it would have been just to, to fade away. I couldn't do it. So I managed to climb out. One of the things that you write about in the section of the book leading up to that event was there were what you might call bad omens. And there were things that you look at in retrospect and say, boy, that was really pointing to danger ahead. And most scientists, I don't think, really admit being superstitious, but you kind of <laughs> do. <laughs> and I was wondering, like, how do you feel about that now? Do you kind of like read the omens, so to speak, and look at them more carefully and heed them? Well, I think all, yeah, you're right. Scientists generally aren't superstitious, but a lot, uh, most climbers are. And uh, also before I was a climber, I was a athlete. I played rugby. Uh, we won some championships. I played volleyball. We won a bunch of championships and athletes are always superstitious or a lot of them are superstitious you know you wear i always wore the same shirt that we won one championship in for the next one and so forth so yeah i suppose my science colleagues would snicker a bit but being on the mountain and seeing how arbitrary life and death can be especially high altitude mountaineers we tend to pay attention to omens and uh, it's not necessarily that it's superstition it's that what seems to be an omen a lot of times is just your mind uh, giving you a little kick and saying, hey, pay attention to this detail that yeah. maybe you're missing, because those details are what add up to tell you whether or not it's safe to do something or not. So, um, yeah, it's easy to call it superstition, et cetera. And it's, it is to some extent, but it also is a recognition that you need every bit of information and everything that you can possibly gather in one place in order to stay alive. How do you feel like it's changed you to have come so close to death? And I mean, not only your own possible death at that moment, but I mean, you describe climbing Everest and seeing, literally seeing the frozen bodies of climbers who didn't make it. Death is a hard thing. I've, I've been on search and rescue in Arizona, Yosemite, and I've had to pull bodies off the mountains and just out of the desert when people are hiking and stuff. And um, you get somewhat inured to it because, you know, it is a part of the cycle of life, or, which sounds uh, weird to say. But when it's you and you go through it and I mean, I died. I should have been dead. I had to dig out of my own grave. I had to dig the snow clear in order to get out. And um, it reminds me of uh, the book Tom Sawyer when he walks in on his own funeral. <laughs> and it's, it's like you start over. You really look at, well, what means something to me? If I had died at that point, what would I have most regretted not doing? 
And it wasn't, you know, not getting a promotion or not having a great car or anything like that. It really is, you know, the people you love and the dreams of things that you want to do. And that's one of the reasons I founded that this Mountain Institute is both to, uh, well, the goal of the Mountain Institute is to train students to get out into the field and collect environmental data. So I wanted both to provide for the future. So when I can't continue collecting data, there's someone else out there, but also make sure that they're as safe as humanly possible when they go out there. We need data. We need it now and we need it in the future, but we need it collected safely and we need to ensure that the next generation is as well prepared as we can make them. And so that dream is really how I've defined my life since I got out of the crevasse. You've also worked in, for example, Central American rainforest environments. You were in Costa Rica, and there's a chapter about that. And you describe the contrast between the clearly etched memories of the cold mountains (laughs) and then the phantasmagoric feeling of the jungle. Can you describe that for us? Well, I'm glad because when I wrote that chapter and my co-author sort of pointed out, you know, this seems really different from the other chapters. And then I went back and read some things like uh, Joseph Conrad's work and looked at how other people have written about jungles. And it tends to be a very similar story. Um, The heat and the humidity sort of batters you and dazes you. And then the day after day, footstep after footstep, you're just surrounded by trees and you can't see anywhere and you don't know what's around the corner. And it has a, it's a very different perspective than being able to see from the top of a mountain hundreds of miles maybe. But I think a lot of it too is when you're a mountaineer and used to a certain type of exertion and suddenly you're faced with overwhelming heat and humidity, it changes your perspective dramatically. Yeah, I mean, being on a mountain where it's 40 below zero and... I mean, just any misstep can take you to your death. And then you go to a nice tropical climate and you think, ah, oh, there's so many things I don't have to worry about. It's just a whole new set of things you have to worry about. <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, it's worse because the dangers in mountaineering are fairly predictable. I mean, you know where the avalanche chutes are and you know where the danger areas are. And we don't know exactly when a storm will hit, but we have a lot better data now than we used to on even that. And you can prepare for a storm. In the jungle, a snake can bite you at any time. Bullet ants and every type of insect or animal is uh, out there lingering. And then plants that sting and burn. So there's so many more variables and uh, it tends to be a lot more difficult to, to plan for. And I found it really Uh, honestly, a little intimidating because especially the snake issue, I mean, having that sort of instant death around at any time, one afternoon we were clearing camp and um, we were just talking. It was fairly calm area. Uh, There wasn't much undergrowth. And my friend Rebecca was uh, using her machete and clearing and just one swipe of her machete, and suddenly there's a, a six-foot fair to lance, one of the most deadly snakes on earth, right at her face. And it thankfully it ran instead of striking at her, but it went between another guy's legs towards a third person. 
And, you know, that just, we went from laughing and joking to what could have happened. And uh, so, yeah, I found that a lot more intimidating in some ways than the uh, mountain. I know, I know how to control the mountain risks. You also had a snake experience when you were working in <laughs> Africa and ended up getting a, a snake tattooed on your leg. Yeah, the, that in Africa was terrible because we had just been to a small kind of homemade zoo. Um, a lot of times when you're in Africa, they'll have like the local villagers have these zoos where they just get animals and put them in boxes and stuff. And it's terrible. But we had been with some people who really wanted to go see it. So we went and looked and um, they had a box of black bombas in uh, it was like a wooden box with plexiglass over the top. And you would look down in it and the snakes would strike at you. And so you could see a black mamba. They call it, you think it must be probably black, but in fact, it's a silver snake with a black mouth as it opens it up. And it's really scary. And so we had gone and looked at them and they would, you know, they would strike at the uh, plexiglass and try and get you. Uh, then just a, like four or five days later, we were walking out to collect some data and uh, trying to be very careful because you're worried about elephants and buffalo and a lot of other things that want to kill you. And uh, suddenly I felt this slimy feeling on my leg. And, you know, for most people, when you feel something slimy, your reaction is sort of go and flick, you know, kick. And I was super lucky because it was a black mamba drawing back to strike. And when I kicked it, it went flying in front of my... Uh, wife at the time and spinning through the air and we ran and <laughs> went and collected our data which to this day just astounds me it's like why didn't we run back to the truck um, but yeah. we went to the data point collected the data went back to the truck and kept collecting data like nothing had happened like i said when i looked at it in hindsight i was like wow that we were really just used to the constant danger yeah you were also pretty close to becoming lunch for a hungry hyena. And you describe the feeling that most of us have never had, which is of being not on the top of the food chain, you know, being being a prey animal, essentially. But I wondered, I mean, after all of that, have you ever lost the desire to go out into dangerous environments again? Or you just keep getting back on the horse? What's that like for you? Well, I think the key is, if it's meaningful, I mean, I wouldn't do that sort of stuff just to go see it and because it's fun. But the thing that keeps me going back is because I know there's a, a void in our understanding of certain parts of the world and how climate change is affecting them and then how we can apply those lessons in other parts of the world, like where we live. So, um, And I also see that people aren't going out there and doing those things. It's too difficult. They don't have the training and that lack of drive for people to get out there combined with the need for the data really makes me feel like if I need to do it, if I don't do it, no one will. So it's motivational. And I feel like I've got the training and the experience and that's kept me alive so many times. And if someone has to risk themselves, it's probably somebody who's best able to survive. So do you see a new generation of climber scientists coming up? I see a lot of people who are interested in it. And 
what I'm most concerned with is that people, students and uh, climbers who are interested in pursuing these things don't get discouraged sort of on one side or overenthusiastic on the other. Right. Uh, I want to make sure that the opportunities are there for them so that they don't get discouraged so that there's you know degrees and there's internships and there's jobs. But then on the other end, I don't want them to be too enthusiastic and run out there without any sort of training and get in trouble and need rescue or get killed or something like that. So again, that's my passion that's emerged since my near-death experience is how can we provide what that next generation needs? Because the more our environment changes, the more we have to be out there on those front lines collecting data and uh, bringing it back and interpreting it and figuring out how societies can use it to adapt to the future. Getting back to the question of climate change, what do you think that, first of all, that individuals can do? It seems like, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, changing my light bulbs, it's such a drop in the bucket. And you sort of addressed that before. Mm -hmm. But on the bigger level of who you vote for, what you encourage your representatives to do, what public policy should and could look like, what do you recommend? Well, it's difficult because when you face, you know, a job and immediate parts of the future, that seems overwhelming. And so people want to vote based upon what's affecting them today. But you look at issues like school vouchers and tariff policy and trade and who's in what bathroom. All those things are important, but they change with the political winds. Fundamentally changing the planet we live on for ourselves and for our children and for our future. I mean, that issue to me is more important than anything. And it should be more important to everyone because we're leaving a different world for our children. And that issue you would hope would dominate everything, but instead we you don't even hear about it when politicians talk. I think that demanding more of our politicians, more respect for science, you know, the March for Science uh, last weekend was super well attended and people all recognized that without science, our society wouldn't be what it is today. People would die of cancer. People would have far less positive lives. And until we as a society demand that education and science and forward thinking policies drive what we do, we're just going to create a worse and worse future for our children and everyone on the planet, every living thing on the planet. John All is a climate scientist, a research professor at Western Washington University. He's founding director of the Mountain Environmental Research Institute and of the American Climber Science Program. And he's author of the new book, Icefall, Adventures at the Wild Edges of Our Dangerous Changing Planet. We're going to link on our website, scienceradiocafe.org, to a video that you actually took of yourself in the crevasse when you were climbing out and your face was bloody and you thought thought to reach in and, and actually take a selfie video. So if you don't mind, we'll link to that on my site. Of course. John All, thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Yeah, of course. Thank you. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. 
If you want to find out about the various organizations that John All is affiliated with that he discussed in this podcast, please go to the website, scienceradiocafe.org, and you can find a post with links to those organizations. And I'm also linking to the video selfie that he took of himself after he landed falling 70 feet down that terrible crevasse in the Himalayas and actually took a couple of videos when he was getting ready to climb out and when he was just almost there. It's pretty strong stuff, but uh, check it out if you if you want. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at steadynetworks.com, and they are part of Dotfoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.